A poem from Marge Piercy. What can they do to you? Whatever they want. They can set you up. They can bust you. They can break your fingers. They can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs till you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, wall up your lover. They can do anything you can't stop them from doing. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, you can take what revenge you can, but they roll over you. But two people fighting back to back can break through a mob. A snake dancing file can break a cordon. An army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, give support, conviction, love, massage, hope, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. With six, you can eat pie for dinner with no seconds. You can rent a whole house and start and hold a fundraising party. A dozen make a demonstration. A hundred fill a hall. A thousand have solidarity and your own newsletter. Ten thousand power and your own paper. A hundred thousand your own media. Ten million your own country. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they said no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean and each day you mean one more. Thank you, Joel and John, for that beautiful music. I was in the fourth grade in Mrs. Truel's class at the old East Paris School, Paris, Texas, as many of you know. I remember the dust motes in the air on that Tuesday morning as we sat at our wooden desks, you know, the wooden desks that sat in rows with the inkwells. I'm not old enough to have actually used the inkwells, but those were the kind of desks that we had. Mr. Stevens, our upright and kindly principal, came on the intercom, that big beige box that was mounted above the chalkboard. Some of you know what an intercom and a chalkboard are. (laughs) In a mournful voice, Mr. Stevens told us that a beloved native son, former President Lyndon Johnson, had died the afternoon before and that the next day we would be getting the day off from school as a sign of respect and remembrance. Well, our fourth grade class erupted in cheers (laughs) because we were going to get the day off of school. And Mrs. Truel immediately quieted and chastened us and said, no, this was not a cause for celebration. It was a moment of Reflection that we were to have a moment of reflection to show our respect for this great man. And my memory 
is that grief and relief were bound up in a complex way that I didn't fully understand, but that an adult who knew more than I did about the ways of response led me to understand that grief and relief can exist together in the complexity of what it means to be human. Years later, I learned that in another corner of Texas, a woman named Norma McCorvey had picked up her newspaper that Tuesday morning and read about the death of LBJ in the Dallas Morning News. Like all Texans, she felt a sense of loss of this great leader. But she also read something closer to her heart. In a small piece below the fold on the front page of the Dallas News, she read that the Supreme Court had ruled in her favor the day before they issued their ruling, the same day that Lyndon Johnson died, in the case of Roe v. Wade. Norma McCorvey was Jane Roe, and this is how she learned the news. She read it in the newspaper. I imagine that she experienced a complex mix of grief and relief. Some years later, I had the privilege of spending an afternoon with Norma when my friend and filmmaker Shannon Malone was producing a documentary about her for HBO. Norma is raucous and funny and irreverent and completely unpretentious. She herself said she was never a very good poster child for the pro-choice movement, which was mostly populated by middle-class white women who were eager for the self-determination and career possibilities that birth control and abortion rights afforded. By the time I had met Norma, she had become a born-again Christian and had repented of her part in the Roe story. She admitted that she lied about the circumstances of her pregnancy and says that she was sorry she ever took part in it. She became a spokesperson for the so-called pro-life movement and then years after that has sort of backed away from public appearances and speaking. It's my belief that Norma was badly used by both polarities in the debate. And uh, my hope and wish for her, especially this week, as there have been so many words written and spoken about the 40th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, is that she has a measure of peace. I imagine this has been a difficult week for her. In the same way that Lyndon Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s did not move us to the end of racism in this country, far from it. So the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade that made, that gave a constitutional right for access to abortion, that abortion was legal, did not end the conversation. What has happened in the last 40 years is that we have grown up these polarities of so-called pro-choice and so-called pro-life. I want to spend a little bit of time this morning exploring where we were and where we are and where I think we're going in the context of what it means to build our conversational 
capacity. We're talking about challenging conversations this month here at First Universalist. And boy, this is a doozy. So let's hang on with this. The way that we can increase our conversational capacity and get out of the polarities is to shift the frame from choice to justice. Choice seems to be too small a word for what we're dealing with. The choices between vanilla or chocolate or a Ford or a Chevy. Justice is so much larger, and we are learning this frame from communities of color who have said to the mostly middle-class white women who have been the the movers of this movement, you're not seeing the whole picture. You need to see the whole picture. So let me say something about this frame of reproductive justice. It asks when a woman is considering whether or not to continue a pregnancy, does she have all that she needs to make the best choice, to be the best parent, to do this difficult work that Marion framed for us about parenting, this hard and holy work of parenting? Does she have stable housing, health care, affordable daycare, a living wage job? How many other children does she have? Is she free from domestic violence? This is the justice framework. The right to have children, the right not to have children, and the right to parent the children we have in safe and healthy environments. It's, it's framed on these, this network of ideas that we are given from communities of color who have defined it as the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, social, economic, and environmental well-being of women and girls. Again, the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, social, environmental, and economic well-being of women and girls based on the full achievement and protection of women's human rights. If we are, as Dr. King tells us, bound up in a network of mutuality, and from the recognition of this network comes our call to justice, our call to justice and compassion and mercy, this framework becomes our key to moving forward. Now, this is a challenge for us who have been toiling in the vineyards for many years. I recognize some of you who have been toiling in the vineyards for many years. It's a challenge for me to change my thinking, the language, and the frame from choice to justice. I have set myself the task to no longer use the phrase pro-choice. That's really tough in my business. I challenge you to think about how we use this and to use the language of justice instead of choice. And here's why this is really important. What we know is that about 20% of the people in this country will say, like I do, that abortion should be available with very limited restrictions to 
and, and there should be access for all women to make their own reproductive health care decisions. I fall in this 20% over here. There's 20% on the other side who will say almost all of the time there should be no access to abortion with very limited uh, exceptions to that. There should be no access to abortion services, right? So 20% over on this poll and 20% over on this poll. You know who's more vocal. We're trying to to change that. But what's important is that there's 60% of the people in the middle who don't identify with either pole, that do not identify with those polarities and certainly don't identify with the labels of pro-choice and pro-life. If what we want to do, what I want to do, is to speak to that 60% in the middle and increase my conversational capacity to be in dialogue with them so that resulting of that dialogue, they may be able to say, even if I don't agree with it, even if I have ethical concerns about the availability or the right to have an abortion, I don't want to make that decision for someone else. That's where our conversational capacity can lead us, to be in conversation with that 60% out of our own stories, to say, even if it's not what I would choose or what I hope would happen, I don't want to be the one to make that decision for a woman in the real world who is making her own personal health care decisions. My mom sometimes says, you don't want to complicate a ham sandwich. Don't try to complicate a ham sandwich. That's what we're trying to do, is complicate this, because it is complex. Because grief and relief exist side by side and interwoven. Because parenting is hard and holy work. Because choosing whether or not to parent a child is difficult and it's a sacred decision. And living a life without children is also sacred. Knowing what is best in our own bodies, in our own hearts and minds. That's the work that we try to do when we listen to women who call our hotline when they're making the decision of whether or not to continue a pregnancy, we help them to listen to the wisdom in their own lives. Stigma and shame serve to separate us from our own wisdom. And to say that life begins at conception, full stop, bumper sticker theology, I call it, is, this, is akin to saying that the entire journey is complete the moment you put on your shoes to walk out the door. It does not serve life as we know it to be so simplistic about it. We are complicating this ham sandwich. I want to just briefly say three pillars of theology that I stand on for this. One is the complexity of all of life. That God shows up, the holy shows up in the complexity of all of life. And it does not serve any of us, children or women or their families or society, to try to reduce it to a catchphrase. The second pillar that I hold up is that human beings are moral decision makers. We know best 
how to make decisions for ourselves and our families. In relationship, we know best in relationship with our faith community, with our understanding of the holy, with our medical care, with our partners. In the still small place inside, we are moral decision makers. And to remove the ability to be a moral decision makers removes our dignity as human beings and is unjust. And the third pillar I stand on as a human being is that human sexuality is a great and good gift and should be used with care and joy. We are so fortunate here in the Unitarian Universalist Church to be uh, Uh, to teach the OWL program, Our Whole Lives, Comprehensive Sexuality Education. We think that's such an important piece of what it means to be a human being. How do we use this great body we got? How do we use it well and responsibly? Unitarian Universalists hold an important piece of the history for reproductive justice. Long before... Roe v. Wade was decided, uh, a group of women at uh, the Alliance at First Unitarian Society were inspired by a a talk by Margaret Sanger, and they were part of the founders of the Birth Control League that became Planned Parenthood. uh, There were members of the clergy, including John Cummins, our minister emeritus, who was a member of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, that helped women find safe places to go before Roe was decided. Did you know that the number one cause of death for women before 1973, when Roe was decided, was complications from illegal abortion? The number one cause of death for women. I didn't know that until this week. No wonder it was an issue that clergy wanted to be a part of. That was a justice issue. Unitarian Universalists were part, uh, we filed an amicus brief for the Roe uh, ruling, for for, uh, Sarah Weddington as she was arguing Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court, and and it was a Unitarian Universalist, James Barrett, on the eve of his 75th birthday, who was a clinic escort in Florida, who was killed by an anti-abortion protester. We have made resolutions and denominational statements 12 times in our association from 1963 till now. And our current congregational study action issue is this very spiritual work, changing the frame from choice to justice. I hope we'll be doing that kind of work here in this congregation as congregations around the country are doing that. To increase our conversational capacity is to be in relationship with other people who will do this with us. AUW has been doing it proudly for years, and MNRCRC and AUW has a project for the day of service. See Tracy Yu, uh, and there's a table downstairs where you can learn more about that. But it also helps us tell our own story. It was when I connected my own story my reproductive journey with my faith journey. And I understood them as one, not separate, that I began to have more integrity as a human being. 
and could be in relationship with integrity and dignity. I came of age in Dallas in the 80s. It was a wild and woolly time. I was an active alcoholic, and I got pregnant. I have never been sorry that I terminated that pregnancy. I'm sorry that I was unkind to people. I'm sorry that I was so irresponsible and that I used people. I'm sorry for a lot of that part of my life. And spend my time doing better. (laughs) But I'm not sorry that I made that right choice. The worst thing that I could have done would have been to bring a child into the chaos of my own life, almost certainly a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. Later, I met my husband at a pro-choice rally. Really good place to (laughs) meet a partner. You get a lot of basic information, you know, right out of the way. We married, and I got sober, and we had our own journey on the roller coaster of infertility. And we lost two pregnancies before we had our daughter, Anna Sophia, who is now 10 years old. And now I get to be the parent that I want to be, that I can be, the best parent that I can be, most days. (laughs) I get to be the parent I never could have been however many years ago that was. Grief and relief is mixed up in all of our lives. Our lives are complicated. As the Poulenc piece you played for us was complex, moving from a major key to a minor key, a a phrase we could understand to something that was hard to hold. That's our lives as human beings throughout our reproductive lives and beyond. A woman said to me not long ago that she was sad that we have to continue this work. And I said, yes, me too. And yet, I am so inspired by the people who have walked this path before, who have been toiling in these vineyards for a long time, the ghost of whom stand with me here today, Betty and Sharon and Drew, that we get to do this work together, that we can change the frame and find a new way to speak about what it means to be human. That's the relief. That's what we hold on to. Let us be about the task.